Hey, really good friends. This podcast contains adult content and language. Listen with care. Hello. And welcome. To Historically Really Good Friends. A queer history podcast. I'm Rachel Craig. And I'm Jared Fumblow. And I need to cough real fast. Okay. <clears throat> Sorry about that. Why? Um, because I feel like I could have done that ahead of time, you know? Like yeah, when fine. you get in the car for a road trip and somebody's like 30 minutes in and you're like, I have, I have to, to go to the bathroom. Like you could have done that. I mean, right. we're adults now. Get it right. together. But when I was a child, I will defend myself when... You know, they were like, we're about to get in the car. I wouldn't have to pee. And then something about being in the car made me have to pee. Okay, but didn't, but then like try before you go, you know? Yeah, but if you, if you try to go to the bathroom, (laughs) it's like training your bladder to always have to go. Like, yeah, it like weakens your bladder. Like, yeah, so you, you're supposed to like. I still do that now. Oh, no, no, no. Oh. No, oh no. <laughs> I didn't know this. No one told me this. Yeah, yeah. So you're supposed to like kind of just go with the flow and like, you know, not, I guess not like hold it necessarily, but like okay. don't force yourself to go to the bathroom before you leave every time because then your body gets like trained necessarily to like mm. have to go. Kind, I guess like, in, I don't really know. I'm not a doctor Uh-oh. or scientist. Okay, well, you get like the concept of it. I do. Yeah, I do. Okay. Yikes. I'm going to leave all of this in. Okay. I I hope you do. This is a really (laughs) abrupt beginning and you all now know a lot about us, I guess. Just really aggressive. Um, Hi, how are you doing? um, I'm good. Um, I'm very good. It's a rainy Sunday afternoon while we're recording this um, and it feels very cozy. I just bought an orchid. Um, so my room has like a lot of nice ambiance right now, Mm -hmm. but it's in like this, I'm going to call it a moss ball, but when I, where I bought it from, they called it like a very fancy name. So I don't even really know what it is. To me, it looks like a moss ball. I'm trying to adopt on this rainy Sunday, the cottage core aesthetic as Mm. defined by Eleanor Roosevelt. Truly. But I, I just don't know what the moss ball thing is, but it's cute and it's making me feel cozy today. Very nice. Well, I love yes, that. How are you. you? I'm good. Um, Ranger and I are coming off of a week that was consistently in the high 90s. So it was like 94 to like 100 for the last like five days. So we experienced like a weird little heat wave here and we were both dying and like ranger is part husky so it was definitely not a pleasant week in the least um but we're getting through it yeah that sounds honestly terrible it's difficult he definitely doesn't it's like he wants to be outside and then we get outside and he's instantly panting and then i'm like okay fine like let's go inside and then he like won't go inside and wants to be outside so it's always a fight it's like a constant fight with him i am sorry that it's hot though for you for the environment for the people of southern california my heart (laughs) goes out to you (laughs) and we thank you (laughs) all right well if we're done talking about the weather i mean the people are here for one thing and one thing only 
That's true. Well, I guess before we get into that, mm. did you want to do some definitions for us for this week? Yeah, why why not? We'll switch it up a little bit and then get into our stories just to to help to help out our our listeners, to help out me. Right. Just because there we we have some listeners who have reached out kind of asking general definitions of certain words. So we thought it might be relevant and helpful to kind of just go over some definitions, especially because both of us are talking about trans figures in history today. So thought it just might be uh, nice to kind of get some definitions out of the way. Some of the words that I wanted to find today are sex, gender, sexuality, transgender and cisgender. Those are kind of the main words I want to talk about. Sex refers to the biological characteristics that define humans as female, male, or intersex, medically determined by anatomy, hormones, and chromosomes, which are little nucleic acids and proteins found in the nucleus of most living cells, if you really want to get like scientific about it. And these chromosomes carry genetic information in the form of genes and so every person has one pair of sex chromosomes which is where we commonly see the like xx meaning a female or xy meaning a male although there are four other variants of sex chromosome pairings including a singular x xxy xyy and xxxy so with sex there's male female intersex but these categorizations are different from our gender. Gender is the social and cultural expression of sex. It's how we act or present ourselves based on what society has deemed appropriate for that gender. So gender is and always has been a social construct, meaning that society has labeled things male or female, such as like toys, clothing, activities, way we act, etc., There are many cultures around the world, such as the indigenous peoples of the Americas and Indians that have for centuries had third genders, and these individuals are usually highly regarded in their cultures. Then there's sexuality or sexual orientation, and this describes the emotional, romantic, and physical feelings of attraction, usually over a period of time. This is different than sexual behavior, which deals with the actual sexual acts being done. So like a closeted gay man could still have sex with a woman and still be gay. Just because he has sex with a woman doesn't mean that he's straight. It's important to note that mainstream society perceives there to be a sex binary and a gender binary. So a sex binary is the classification of sex into two distinct, opposite, and rigidly fixed anatomical options, male or female, both grounded in a person's physical anatomy, and a gender binary is the idea that there are only two genders, meaning males or females or man and woman, and that a person must be strictly gendered as either or. And I guess you could also say that there is a sexuality binary, meaning that a person's either totally straight or totally gay. And we know these binaries are not realistic. There are intersex people there are people who feel they're non-binary or gender fluid there are people who are bisexual or pansexual there are people that don't fit into any of these labels and because we're going to be talking about trans figures i also want to identify trans and cisgender because there are people that are like like you're calling me cisgender because you like you're just coming up with labels now and it's like Mm -hmm. no the word like trans and cis have like roots you know, like the word is not just like a liberal propaganda. Right. And similarly to the way that we categorize race, there's always something 
that you're making the comparison to, but you're just not as familiar with it. So people aren't typically identified as white, though they Mm -hmm. may typically be identified as black. And similarly with trans and cis, people Mm -hmm. very rarely are identified as cis, but more often identified as trans. Both always exist, but we only only are familiar or more comfortable using one of them or understanding what one of them is. Right. Trans people are individuals whose gender identity differs from their biological sex, meaning someone born with, let's say, male reproductive organs and assigned male at birth, uh, but identifies as female. On the other hand, a cisgender person describes a person whose gender identity and biological sex align, such as a person who identifies as a woman and was assigned female at birth. And so the prefix cis comes from the Latin meaning on the side of, and trans comes from the Latin meaning across. You know, so there was one thing and then there's the opposite of it. Again, I just kind of want to drive home the point that these binaries, you know, male, female, straight, gay, so on and so forth, negate those that fit in between those classifications. Society tends to other or marginalize those who do not fit neatly into one categorization or the other. So keep in mind that when we talk about these figures and these people in this episode and in future episodes, you know, they they may not fit neatly into, into one label or another, but we are using certain terms to just help kind of tell the story and the terms we have nowadays to describe trans people and their experiences didn't really even begin to exist until the 20th century. So we are using a lot of terms that may not have been used back then. But again, it's all in um, the hopes to aid in telling of the stories. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, Jared. Yeah, those are just a few definitions, terms. Um, Yeah, our brains as human beings are hardwired to put things into categories. And so we encourage you when listening to this episode and all of our others to keep an open mind when your brain might be trying to do that. And it can be difficult or confusing to understand things differently than that. But hopefully, like Jared said, this can help to lay a foundation to expanding our understanding of our silly evolution brains. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And with that, let's get into our stories. Okay, so this week, apparently, I'm just like on a mission to pick a topic that I cannot pronounce every yeah. single week <laughs> for as long as the podcast runs. So this week we're talking about, and Jared, please help me along with this because you oh are more qualified in French than I am. Right. But we're talking about the French spy and very possibly the first openly trans person in Europe, the Chevalier Dion. Yeah, that sounds right. Sound, sounds that, right? That sounded okay. great, Rachel. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I'm I'm learning so much. You're so cultured. <laughs> yeah. Sources for this week include the British Museum's page dedicated to Desire, Love, and Identity collection, the National Portrait Gallery, a Sky History article entitled Chevalier Dion and Gender Nonconformity in the 18th Century, and the podcast episode, Not What You Thought You Knew, with Dr. Fern Riddell, Dr. Andrew Lear, and E.J. Scott, also titled The Chevalier Dion and Gender Nonconformity in the 18th Century. All right, so kind of as Jared noted earlier, up front, I'm going to say, too, that The Chevalier's identity is not completely clear in their own words, so... 
throughout this episode, I'm going to be using they, them pronouns when talking about the Chevalier. So just to kind of get on the same page there. We're heading back in time to kind of episode one territory. We're in 18th century France, a few years before the birth of one Marie Antoinette. Ooh. Yeah. So I want to, I got to take a deep breath for this. There are, to prepare, there are one, two, three, four, five, six dashes in this name. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh Uh-huh. So... So Charles, Genevieve, Louis, Auguste, Andre, Timothy, Dion de Beaumont, Mm -hmm. probably not with a T, but you know, was born on October 5th, 1728 in central France. They were born into a family that was sort of on the periphery of nobility and aristocracy, but they weren't royals. So they were like, probably higher up in the sort of like French type caste system, but they weren't that noble or royal or famous. There's little record of what Charles's early life was like, but we do know that they moved to Paris in 1743 at the age of 15 and then graduated with a law degree from the college Marzarine six years later in 1749. So just like moving away very young already. I guess that was for the time. If you're going to live to be like 50, I guess you got to get a move on with your life. Yeah, you got to be quick. <laughs> there is no time yeah. to fuck around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So now in Paris, Charles became a part of King Louis XV's spy network. It was here that they began to work closely with high-ranking French officials and often traveled to Russia and London for this kind of spy business. And... I want to note here, as I was researching, everybody would say secret spy network, which I feel like is redundant. Don't want it to agree. Secret spy network. Yeah, I guess to the the public, (laughs) it would be a secret. So yeah, no, I agree. I think the point of being a spy is Is that it's a secret. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, I agree. So part of the secret spy business. Okay, which how badass. I know. So while on a mission in Russia, it is reported that the Chevalier assumed a female identity to serve within the court of the Empress Elizabeth. They did not spend too much time, though, as a spy before moving through some more diplomatic roles, serving as both a French ambassador and a captain within the French cavalry during the Seven Years' War in 1761. And they were also part of the diplomatic efforts to end the war traveling to London in 1763 to assist with drafting the Treaty of Paris, which was the peace agreement that ended the Seven Years' War. It's like very official now, Mm -hmm. just moving through the ranks. The Chevalier was rewarded for this service and given the title Chevalier, which is similar to being knighted. Okay. But they were also then replaced by a new ambassador in London and were like, what the fuck? That's not really cool. And just refused to return to France. So they were demoted? Basically. Okay. And so, but they were part of the French military at this point. So they were like, okay, come home now. And they were like, no, I'm not going to do that. Right. Actually. If you're going to take away my position. Yeah. Like, no, thanks. And needless to say, King Louis was not into this. <laughs> Yeah. And to protect themselves, the Chevalier began publishing many of the documents and correspondence that they had with members of the French diplomatic team, including the king. So essentially, 
blackmailing like the French government to be like, let me leave me alone. Let me stay here. Right. So many of the letters were embarrassing Mm. to the people writing them or like straight up compromise the French foreign policy and like, like important documents basically. So because of this, the French government was kind of like backed into a corner and this sort of blackmail was successful and the Chevalier was paid off and was able to stay in London. Wow. So they were regularly receiving payments now from the French people, government, um, and living in London, though they were relinquished from any role within France. And at this time, the Chevalier began to live permanently as a woman. Oh. There were rumors about their gender years earlier when they were often seen buying and wearing corsets while in London. And also the work that they did as a spy came up in this, but it was less notable because it was fairly typical at the time for women to dress as men in order to kind of like go into battle. And dressing as a woman to complete an espionage mission seemed to kind of track along the same lines. Like it 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 felt like it served a purpose similar to women dressing as men. Mm-hmm. However, by 1777, the Chevalier had amassed more fame because of their prominent roles and no longer kind of had the same identity as in the past. And so this became more noticeable to those in London, especially considering now that the Chevalier's gender expression had changed. So Mm -hmm. they were living, dressing as a woman. So the funds from the French government from this blackmail thing didn't support the Chevalier forever. By 1789, at the start of the French Revolution, the government could no longer support these regular payments. Mm. And so to support themselves, the Chevalier began participating in fencing exhibitions, which is cool. Yeah, what? Do you think fencing was part of spy secret spy training? You know what? I don't know because I think fencing is mainly like a performative thing. Do you think people did that as like a defense? I... Who I don't know. I think it's more like a sport. Right, but okay. Let's say you're running away from a bad guy or something and they have a sword and you have, you know, you get a sword and then you have to fight them off by like sparring, right? That feels yeah, like a spy. I suppose. But I think the thing that you use to fence is different than a sword. Yeah, absolutely. Because they have- But, so, but yes, sharp, I think the right? sword, the swordsmanship. Mm-hmm. Okay, my fencing knowledge is from- um the parent trap so mine as well yeah so maybe we're not qualified but i'm sure the sort the the movements and mm-hmm. like you said the the sparring is is probably helpful yeah okay i, I would agree okay i'm glad <laughs> i'm happy to hear that <laughs> so yeah they're kind of doing these fencing ex- exhibitions like sort of performing it didn't sound like they were competitions but mm-hmm. kind of like going on tour as a fencer and at this time the chevalier was wearing women's dress both in public and at these exhibitions, like fencing as a woman. Though their name remained Charles, Dion, and this kind of still drew some attention and speculation. And so there was still a lot of talk about their gender identity. Mm -hmm. At one time too, the Chevalier offered to lead an all-female army in the name of France to defend against France's enemies. So that's pretty sick. Because why not, right? Yeah, why not? I mean, they had like ex- military experience and I guess there were women right. that were like, let's do this. 
But soon after most of the French royalty had been executed, Marie Antoinette included during the revolution. So I don't think that uh, idea ever really came to a head. Sure. Get it? Get ah, it? Look at you in these puns. I know. Doing my best here. So yeah, there was, there was no all-female army in the name of France because France was, France was going through it at the time. Mm-hmm. And then... Towards the end of their life, they lived in close to poverty um, with a friend, Mrs. Coles, until their death in 1810 at age 81. Wow. Yeah, that's kind of like... That's a long life. Oh, yeah, definitely. I like. I guess I don't really have a concept of what's long or what's not for, for times, but that does feel very old right. for 1810. And that's kind of most of the record that we have. On the Chevalier, mainly, I would maybe because they were a spy, a a very secretive spy. (laughs) So there's not a lot of information. Some accounts recognize the Chevalier Dion as Europe's first openly trans person. There are some personal accounts from the Chevalier still remaining that offer some more insight into their life. But as we were talking about earlier, it's difficult to label someone without their own account and by the standards of today, you know, using our present language and our present understanding about things. It is certainly clear, though, at least in the research I've done, that the Chevalier spent most of their adult years as a woman, like living as a woman, regardless of the kind of public perception or speculation. It's kind of very similar, I think, as I was reading to our episode with Eleanor Roosevelt, like, how are we supposed to know? How do we know these things? And I do suppose a lot of this is speculation, and I don't want it to be. It's difficult, I think, for some of these episodes, but it also feels like that the Chevalier being a trans person or having a different gender identity or expression than was accepted at the time is probably a more accurate story based on this information, and and it seems that others may be trying to complicate it or making a spin on it to just make it seem like they weren't trans or didn't want to dress and be seen as a woman at least. Right. And so we don't know. We will never know for sure one way or another. But I want to note too, the Annual Register, which is a London-based reference book, sort of similar to like an almanac, wrote in 1781, quote, it must indeed be acknowledged that she is the most extraordinary person of the age. We have seen no one who has united so many military, political, and literary talents, unquote. So though we may not know in their own words what gender identity and expression meant to them, the Chevalier is celebrated for their accomplishments, both because of and in spite of their gender identity. So yeah, that's, there's like a lot of twists and turns. There wasn't a lot of the the meat, I think, of, of their life. There wasn't that much information, yeah. but just a lot of like the big sparkly points. <laughs> Right. It was a sweet and short story, but I mean, still a really cool person to have existed and to kind of be in this realm of some sort of queerness. And this is something that will kind of come up in my story as well, but it seems like for the Chevalier to continue presenting in a more traditionally feminine way without some sort of gain to it, right? Like, okay, right. if there was... if. The Chevalier was doing drag and dressing as a woman and performing kind of like Barbette did. Mm -hmm. I would understand maybe there being some argument to, okay, maybe, maybe they weren't trans. They're just doing it for this show, doing it for a performance. But to then 
continue to live your everyday life presenting as a woman it gives more weight and more of an argument to there's more of a chance that that they were trans didn't have language or other people to express that or like have an avenue to properly uh, communicate that but that doesn't mean that they weren't so exactly like that's a thing so performing in the exhibitions the fencing exhibitions as a woman was one thing, but you're right. It wasn't just that. It wasn't, it was in all aspects of their life mm-hmm. from, so about 1777 till their death in 1810, just lived and presented as a woman in, in all ways of life. So I do agree that I think that that lends itself to maybe a present day understanding of, of being trans. But again, we don't have that exact language. I also think that like like we were talking about with Eleanor Roosevelt, there's a lot of like things that just don't make sense. As I was researching, one of the mm-hmm. things that came up was like part of the the payoff from the French government for this blackmail was that they told the Chevalier he had to live as a woman for the rest of his life. And that's why he did that. And it was like, that that doesn't make what? sense. Like that like why what story? Right. Is that? <laughs> like that just doesn't <laughs> That in no way makes sense to me based on no, like it doesn't anything. add up. So that's right. It's things like that that lead to conflicting, I guess, accounts of what happened. Mm-hmm. But based on the information I've gathered, it certainly sounds like living as a woman is what was Mm -hmm. important for the Chevalier's life in adulthood. Right. Such a cool person. Yeah. Very, very interesting. Um, And love some, again, some really good photos for this week. Very excited. Sweet. Thank you for telling that story. Thanks for listening. This week, I'm going to be talking to you about uh, the jazz musician Billy Tipton. I'm very excited. I know slightly more about this than other weeks, but I'm very excited for you to paint me a picture today. How? With words? What no, do you no, how, how, do you, how do you know about <laughs> Billy Tipton? Do you know about him previously or because I told you about him? No, I knew about it when going through our research list. Gotcha. This was one of the ones I preliminarily researched okay. um, to have a general knowledge of. So I'm using more sources kind of than I do in previous weeks, just because there are a lot of conflicting narratives and stories about Billy Tipton, um, especially surrounding his gender. I am going to be using he, him pronouns the entire time, just because that seems to be the most accepted modern view on him and his life. But so the sources I used are Billy Tipton and the Question of Gender from Making Queer History, The Singular Life of Billy Tipton by Calvin Kasulk for Vice, Billy Tipton's Legacy Project Profile, Billy Tipton's History Link Profile, an article called The Transformation of Dorothy Tipton by Francesca Susanna. So that's kind of, that's one of the older articles and like even just from the title alone you can see that there was kind of an issue with misgendering and dead naming going on so that's also why there's a lot of sources and billy tipton's wikipedia page so 
In January of 1989, Billy Tipton, an accomplished jazz musician and household name, collapses in his mobile home in Spokane, Washington. One of his sons, William, or Bill Jr., immediately calls paramedics who rush to the home to perform resuscitation. When Billy's shirt is ripped open, paramedics make the discovery that Billy has breasts. And so this reveal that Billy has the physical anatomy of a woman shocks his sons, the five women who all at one point consider themselves Billy's wife, and the nation at large. Now, let's go back to the beginning. Billy Tipton is born on December 29th, 1914 in Oklahoma City. He's assigned female at birth and given the name Dorothy Lucille Tipton. He spends his childhood in Kansas City, Missouri, under the care of an aunt after his parents' divorce when he's just four. In high school, he goes by the nickname Tippy and becomes incredibly interested in music, especially jazz music, and learns how to play both the piano and the saxophone. And the Kansas City that Billy grows up in is becoming a city known for its jazz players and clubs and for the genre of jazz called Kansas City Jazz that originates during the 1920s and 30s. And while it's said that New Orleans is the birthplace of jazz, it's said that, quote-unquote, America's music grew up in Kansas City. Mm. And although it's one of his goals, Billy isn't allowed to join the school band as it's a male-only band and forbade girls from joining, and he's still presenting as a girl at this time. Billy returns back to Oklahoma before his senior year of high school, and it's during this school year that he's able to join the school band and play with the boys. After graduating high school, Billy becomes more serious about pursuing a career in performing jazz music. When he goes back to Oklahoma, which is a dry state and in the midst of the Great Depression, people are still dancing and trying to enjoy themselves. Musician jobs are incredibly competitive already, and bars and clubs refuse to hire women no matter how talented they are. So, like his experience in high school, he's turned away from auditions based on his feminine presentation alone. It's just this sort of unspoken rule that women just like don't get hired by bands or by clubs or anybody in jazz who really has a say at all. So in 1933, with the help of two female cousins, Billy decides to begin showing up to auditions wearing more traditionally masculine attire, such as suits and introducing himself by his father's name, Billy. Billy's face already seems boyish, so the transformation like isn't really all that hard. And around this time, Billy also begins to bind his chest with a worn-out strip of sheet and pad his pants to appear like he's packing. And for those who don't know, some more vocab for you. Binding involves wearing tight clothing, bandages, compression garments to flatten out your chest to appear more flat. And packing is a term some people use to describe having a non-flesh penis. So using something to kind of have, like the shape or the look or the feel Mm -hmm. of a penis. Being an incredibly talented horn player, pianist, and tenor, Billy sees almost instant success with this strategy, getting gigs, playing with bands, and playing a number of venues. It's also important to note that in the beginning, Billy is only presenting as a man while he's performing, but outside of his performance during his off hours, he's still presenting as a woman. Many friends at this time claim that Billy wasn't trying to be a man, which uh, I feel like you can't really say that a trans person wasn't going through their gender journey and you can't from the outside being be like, no, he wasn't trying to be a man because at that right. time, 
maybe he was and just wasn't speaking openly about right. it we don't know for sure right. but they do say that he was just wearing men's clothes to have the uniform of jazz players and to fool the audience just enough so sure it also kind of feels like just like what you're talking about like it's one or the other either you're like always looking acting behaving as a woman or you must not care or or be that right. way or whatever and so it it again goes back to that it's it's either or and there's no room for being on that journey like you were saying right so realistically billy was somewhere in between you know just doing it to to get jobs and actually being on this like gender journey right but in this male jazz performer persona women think that billy is incredibly handsome which he is in 1934, Billy begins the first of his five serious relationships with a woman named Non Earl Harrell, and the two move in together pretty quickly. Non Earl Harrell is older than Billy and is called Non Earl because she has an estranged husband named Earl. And so people just kind of call her Non Earl, which feels... That's so funny. It feels so fucked up to be like... You don't have Earl anymore. You're non-Earl. You know, it like they yeah, make like her really salt in the wound. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so I don't know what her real name is, but uh, they call her non-Earl. I'm sorry, non-Earl. It's funny. It is funny right. though. I'm sorry. And together they live in a boarding house. Billy is about 19 years old, and non-Earl is in her early 30s. About two years later, Billy and Non-Earl are still together. Billy is honing his jazz skills with Each Time He Plays, and starting in 1936, Billy's professional career as a jazz musician really begins to take off. He becomes the leader of a band playing on KFXR Radio, and in 1938, another two years later, Billy joins Louvenese Western Swingbillies, a band that plays on KTOK, another station, and finds himself a steady gig at a local tavern. By 1940, Billy joins on with Scott Cameron's big band, which plays dances all around the Midwest, Wyoming, and Colorado. So by now, consistently finding work and having work, Billy Tipton stops being just a stage persona and becomes Billy entirely. Off the stage, mm-hmm. Billy stays Billy. He continues to bind his chest and live his life as a straight man. He adopts the name Billy Lee Tipton full-time. In 1941, Billy and Non Earl make the move from Oklahoma City, his small hometown, which Billy thinks he might not have the best ability to consistently live as Billy if he knows a lot of people, if they recognize him, and they decide to move to Joplin, Missouri. And here, Billy would play at the Cotton Club, which is a local joint, for about two and a half years. Billy and Non Earl settle into this typical domesticity, and Billy creates a story about a serious car accident and unhealed broken ribs to explain why he wasn't fighting in the war and why he wore tight chest bindings. In 1942, Non Earl tires of this domestic housewife sort of life, and she actually up and leaves Billy. So Non Earl is out. Does she become Non Billy? The legend says to this day. (laughs) (laughs) Very Handmaid's Tale. I've never seen that or read it. In The Handmaid's Tale, all of the women are... Are they named for their husbands? No, not for their husbands, for the men that they're having children for. Oh, um, that's literally, I mean, 
taking no, no, no. your so, husband's so, last so name is in, very similar. In The Handmaid's Tale, most of the women in the world can't have children, but there are select few that, except for the except right. for the handmaids. And so the handmaids are forced to have the children of like the rich and powerful. And so like mm. when they're handmaided for like a man named Warren, they're like of Warren. That's just their name. It's of oh, Warren or like of yeah, Glenn weird. or of and it changes every single time they go to okay. a new man. Very weird. Okay, the podcast has just become you explaining things to me. Okay, got it. Love it. After non-Earl leaves Billy, he begins to get a taste for younger women. And in 1943, Billy quote-unquote marries a singer named June. June is in her late teens and Billy is about 28. And Billy and June live together and travel to Billy's gigs together before they split up after like two or three years. By the time that June and Billy split up, Billy has already met another woman, Betty Cox, an 18-year-old with incredibly good looks. Billy is 13 years older than her, but she describes Billy as, quote, neat, clean, and he doesn't use foul language with me, cute as a bug, such a nice smile. And they, again, quote-unquote, marry in 1946. And the reason I keep saying, like, quote-unquote, marry is because they are committed to each other and exclusive, but Billy never officially files like any legally marries right. Anyone? He doesn't file any paperwork. Okay. They don't have a wedding. They don't. They don't do anything. But they say married. But they say that they're married, and so it kind of just becomes a thing. Like these are Billy's wives, but they're really just like girlfriends, like partners that he has. Okay, like long term partners. Right, okay, and I think it. the main reason for this is because he doesn't want to have to go through the possibility of being outed as trans or have to go through right. you know X, Y, and Z to prove right. that he is who he is and right. all of these things. I'm sure. Yeah, you have to like provide identification and things like that to apply for marriage licenses. Right. In 1949, Billy begins to tour the Pacific Northwest with the George Meyer Trio. The first few gigs of this tour are less than glamorous and not promising. Stubborn tavern crowds insist the jazz trio try to play country music. So (laughs) the, the people are not really receptive to them. But the trio appears in the Shalimar Room in the rough logging town of Roseburg, Oregon, and are recorded by a local radio station, which is a really big deal for people, like a trio at this point. Their signature song is Flying Home, which becomes popular among listeners, and some of their tracks still exist from these recordings today. Over the next three years or so, Billy and the George Meyer Trio continue to tour the Pacific Northwest Circuit, becoming increasingly successful, branching out into Idaho, sharing the bill with other popular groups like the Ink Spots, the Delta Rhythm Boys, and Billy Eckstein. By 1951, Billy begins to actually perform in a solo act, playing piano at the Elks Club in Longview, Washington. Shortly after, Billy starts the Billy Tipton Trio with Dick O'Neill on the drums and Kenny Richards on bass, and quickly they gain local popularity. With each time they play, they begin to play in nicer and nicer venues, until in 1954 when they're playing in really nice venues such as upscale hotels in Spokane. Around the same time, after seven years together, Billy and Betty break up, and almost instantly, Billy jumps into a relationship with woman number four, Marianne, a classy call girl, meaning sex worker. Marianne is 33, older than Billy usually goes for, but she's very beautiful and glamorous, and... Not that I want to talk about this in depth, but some people might be wondering how Billy keeps becoming involved with these women and them not knowing that he's trans. 
Billy always maintains his story about his accident, broken ribs, and sometimes injured genitals, but he would also lock the bathroom door when bathing and dressing. He would exclusively have sex in the dark, and he was always the dominant partner, so he would never really be touched during sexual activity. And that's all I really want to say into it, because like a trans person's sex life is a trans person's sex life, but that's kind of how he was able to maintain this cis life. Right, right. Without without his partners knowing. Right. But yeah, none of your business. But anyways, back to Billy and his trio. During 1956, the band is traveling, performing all over the West Coast. During a show in Santa Barbara, California, a talent scout for the Los Angeles-based budget label, Tops Records, discovers them. The Billy Tipton Trio signs a contract with the label and records two albums of jazz standards called Sweet Georgia Brown and Billy Tipton Plays Hi-Fi on Piano, both of which are released in early 1957. And during this first year, the record sells 17,678 copies, which is small but a respectable sum for an independent record label. The success of these records brings the trio notoriety and better gig offers in 1958. A brand new casino in Reno, Nevada called the Holiday Hotel offers the trio a lucrative house band position, and Topps Records actually invites them back to record four more albums. Wow. Billy, though, in a crushing blow to his fellow band members, declines both offers and instead chooses to move the trio along with Marianne up to Spokane, Washington, where he wants to settle down in the suburbs. The trio performs weekly in Spokane, but Billy also becomes a talent broker, putting more energy and focus into his career, helping younger artists get work. By 1960, after seven years together with Marianne, Marianne discovers that Billy is involved with a nightclub dancer named Kathleen Kitty Kelly, also nicknamed the Irish Venus. Kitty is 27 and Billy is 45. So Billy and Marianne are done. And a year later, Billy and Kitty move in together, enjoying a loving but sex-free quote-unquote marriage. Together, they adopt three boys. The boy's biological mother surrendered them and Billy and Kitty kind of just take the boys in, but it's never through an adoption agency. They settle into their this new familial life. Kitty joins the PTA. The family takes fishing trips and vacations in Billy's free time. Like, wow, so domestic. Right, like they kind of live this like picturesque American family life, you know, during this time. Billy continues to play jazz at local venues, but in the late 1970s, worsening arthritis forces him to retire from music kind of altogether. Kitty and Billy are together for 16 years, but separate around 1977, unable to make the partnership work, and Billy actually begins talking to Marianne again, tossing around the idea of maybe moving in together, but Marianne realistically doesn't see the relationship working and kind of declines the offer. Towards the end of this almost like semi-rekindling, Marianne does confront Billy about his birth certificate that she discovered in the 1960s, asking Billy if he had been born Dorothy, but he refuses to answer, only giving her what she later would recall a terrible look. Billy lives out the remainder of his life, progressively getting sicker and more feeble, contracting emphysema from heavy smoking, and no matter how much his sons beg their father to go to the doctor, Billy refuses Again, most likely not wanting to be outed to doctors as a trans man. 
like his sons don't know all of the women in his life don't know a lot of family and friends and none of the men that he toured with like nobody knows that billy is a trans man and there's a lot of harm too that can come from the medical profession and being trans and so probably just like as a protective measure especially if you're already sick maybe he is just prioritizing safety over something else maybe right and billy is actually suffering from a hemorrhaging ulcer in his stomach which is left untreated and is fatal and so billy passes in 1989 at the age of 74 unfortunately after he passes one of billy's sons goes to the tabloids with the story of billy being trans and so Billy's outing as a trans man after death turns ugly incredibly fast. Two of his sons, feeling deceived, change their names altogether in order to not be associated with him. Books and articles are released, constantly misgendering Billy and refusing to acknowledge his life as a man. In the Vice article, it's written that, quote, on shows like Oprah, Billy's ex-wife Kitty and Billy Jr. would state, this was my husband slash father to which the host would inevitably respond, no, she wasn't. And so okay, it's like, incredibly gross. Right. And it's it, on talk shows. It's in newspaper articles. It's like the public is reading everything about Billy and completely just negating this entire life that he's lived as a man. And it's just like after death, it's just this like gross mishandling. And it's incredibly upsetting that Billy lives most of his life like from the point that he has autonomy up until his death he lives as a man and even his you know the the woman that he spends the longest period with plus one of his sons are like he was my father he was my husband and people are just simply being like no that's not true and then misgendering him like it's just it's so gross it completely is devastating to billy and billy's legacy and the like these talk shows and newspapers and everything were at a national level so everyone was reading these being right. like no he wasn't a man because this person says it not only should you have human compassion but fucking journalistic integrity mm-hmm. to not be doing that and and i think it goes into a lot of what we're seeing today of of this idea that floats around quite commonly of like Trans people aren't trans. They're doing it to have success in whatever field mm-hmm. they are currently in. And so I think that's probably a lot of this too, based on the, the beginning of your story. And that's super gross. Yeah. Stop doing that. And like, I don't really have any other words for it besides it is very frustrating to me and frustrating is not frustrating to me is not important i'm not saying that's that's the emotion that needs to be valued (laughs) here by any means but it's really gross when you do that and make those assumptions and talk about people in that way especially like you're saying journalists and talk shows at a national level just like ignoring things and perpetuating these myths right and so Many of the articles and resources that I found while researching Billy continued through the early 2000s to use she, her pronouns and just completely misgender and use the name that he was given when he was born. And it's like, right? it would be like people kind of like with the Eleanor Roosevelt biographer where they'd be like, no, she wasn't queer. Billy Tipton's biographer or other biographers would be like, no, because Billy was a woman that was 
um, somewhere in between the binary of woman and man and just kind of dressing fluidly. And it's like, but there are, but there's all of the, all of this other evidence that is suggesting that Billy is living his life on and off the stage. Because that's the thing. It's like, if Billy with Chevalier too, if Billy wasn't trans, why would he then take all of the time and the effort to live his entire life as a man, not tell his partners that he was a trans right. man? It's like, there are all these things. Why, why would he go through all of that if he wasn't trans? Right. And it's like very intentional too, mm-hmm. because if you knew this person or the legacy of this person their whole life as Billy Tipton, a man, it's intentional for you to go out of your way to then destroy that right. and also again not for nothing and not that it should be a comment on trans bodies but like to go your whole life binding mm-hmm. is especially at that time probably incredibly painful and like really difficult to mm-hmm. do and again it goes to this trans people don't have to justify anything to you right. but like goes to this whole thing about what benefit do you see coming out of this like what right. benefit to Billy exists here. Mm-hmm. I because I'm I can't pinpoint one and I also don't think people do that I don't think that's a human thought to be like, I'm gonna do this really difficult thing for my whole life to get this small reward. Right. I it just, just like, it don't think that that's sense. normal. No. So it's just such a shame mm-hmm. and to to have to have this much controversy for someone who contributed a significant legacy to music and to his family's life is annoying. Mm -hmm. And over the last decade and a half, luckily, Billy's story has been recognized by trans activists and incorporated into trans masculine history. Billy Tipton's legacy has inspired various works such as plays, jazz cabarets, and the formation of musical groups. And in 2020, a documentary entitled No Ordinary Man about Billy was released, premiering at the Toronto International Film Festival. And the documentary attempts, and I would say succeeds, at giving Billy another chance in the media spotlight, this time from a less biased perspective. So I would encourage everyone to go watch it. The point is not to reclaim the telling of Billy's story. I think it just does a good job at telling Billy's story, especially from a more modern, accepting, realistic standpoint, viewpoint. Yeah. I love a good doc. I'll have to check it out. Yeah. And that is the story of Billy Tipton, a transmasculine jazz player of the 20th century. Well, thank you for telling me that story. I think in my the preliminary research that I said I did, there was just kind of came up with a lot of those conflicting reports. So sifting Mm -hmm. through that and giving us a brief but more accurate picture was really great. And I'm happy to have gotten that. And it is a cautionary tale in just Googling people, I would say too. (laughs) Yeah, Uh (laughs) absolutely. Yeah. Do the research and make sure you're not just getting it from one. <laughs> yeah, take source. some of the new definitions here and be be a little inquisitive. If something yeah. something might now strike you, you might see one of uh, a talk show episode or a news article or a biography or something and be like, hmm, that didn't hmm. sit right with me. <laughs> yeah, um, dig into so it. Now, yeah, yeah, dig into it more. One thing that Rachel and I uh, kind of want to start doing, especially with 
you know, on the topic of being inquisitive and um, just like curious to hear more stories is we want to hear from you folks. If you want to write in a story, any story really about, you know, when you knew you were queer or when you came out or about a queer person in your life that maybe doesn't get the spotlight, like the people that we talk about, you know, they don't get the recognition of the fame. It might just be someone personal in your life. If you want to tell us that story and have us read it on the podcast, write us, email us at historicallyreallygoodfriends at gmail.com. We're really happy to tell the stories that we're telling, but it definitely doesn't encompass, I think, the full history, present day stories of the queer people in our lives, in your lives, and it'd be nice to be able to share some of those stories too from the people that you can't inappropriately Google. Um, right. <laughs> so, so we're, I think, really happy to hopefully bring some of those to the pod, but you have to send them to us. So Please, yeah. either, either a personal story or if you have permission from someone else um, to share a story or the impact that they've had on you to have them commemorated on our on our little project our here. little silly podcast we would, yeah. would absolutely love to host it we would love it and we'll just read exactly what you send us yeah Jared? Mm-hmm. yeah Perfect. so write it like a story don't just write bullet points because i won't then put it into story form like i want you right. to tell us the story i want us to also kind of be part of the audience we're just the vessels in which the stories right. are coming through Yes, we'll be the narrators. Um, mm-hmm. Otherwise, if you send bullet points, uh, your story will be filled with a lot of likes and mm-hmm. us. And so I'm going to lie a lot. I'm just going to make stuff up. <laughs> yeah, we'll just make things up. So um, please send us your own stories. And send us true stories. Don't. This isn't Wattpad. This isn't, you know. Wattpad. Yeah. As much as I want it to be, <laughs> it's not. Thanks for tuning in to episode 11 of Historically Really Good Friends, where we talked about gender identity. This is your weekly reminder that acknowledging the queerness of our history makes even being a member of a secret spy ring a little bit more fun. Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. And to see photos from this week's episode, make sure to check out our Instagram at historicallyreally. We hope to see you again next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.